0: study of the word, Jeremiah chapter 32, the topic, Jeremiah questions God when he is asked to buy a seemingly worthless field, title of our message, tell God how you field, let's have a word of prayer, Father, um, we want to hear from you this morning, certainly we want to learn something from the text about the times and uh, trials of Jeremiah, but we believe that this ancient text can speak to us in modern times. It can speak to our church as a whole, and it can speak to each of us as Christians. And Lord, we know that you can use it to speak to those who are here that don't know you. Their hearts never really been surrendered to you. They've not trusted you for salvation. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do all of that by the power of your word and in the energy of your Holy Spirit who is here in this place and in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus name, and all who agreed said, "Amen. I have some swamp land in Florida to sell you," is an expression people once used whenever someone was swindled on a purchase of so-called lucrative land that turned out to be worthless. No one has really used that particular expression much since the '60s and '70s, when Walt Disney did purchase worthless swamp land in Florida, and he transformed it into Walt Disney World. It kind of changed the game a little bit. In our text, Jeremiah is going to be told by God to purchase a plot of land in his hometown of Anathoth. It was currently worthless in that the invading armies of King Nebuchadnezzar were already occupying it. Its value would decline even more if that's possible, if it's possible for something worthless to be worth even less, because the Babylonians were going to destroy Jerusalem and deport the population of Judah. Judah. It seemed by all natural indicators to be downright foolish to be dabbling with land in Anathoth. But that's exactly what Jeremiah did. He bought the field. When Jeremiah questioned him, God declared how he was going to transform the land in the future into something wonderful. God often asks his followers to do a lot of seemingly foolish things that he transforms into something wonderful in the future. Noah comes to mind, asked to build an ark, even though the rain was a thing, we're told in Hebrews, not yet seen. Noah built a boat when there was, it had never rained before. Abraham was asked to set out for the promised land. Again, in Hebrews, it says, not knowing where he was going. I know sometimes when you get lost, it seems like you don't know where you're going, but you have some idea. But Abraham set out with no idea at all where he was going. They were fools for Christ. And that's what we are supposed to be as well. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, are you foolish enough to buy a worthless field for Jesus? Number two, is Jesus faithful enough to bless a worthless field for you? Let's take a look at our foolishness first in verses one through 25. Perhaps it would be better to ask, are you willing to seem foolish for Jesus? Because what he asks of you is never truly foolish. It only seems that way at the time, like building a boat when it had never rained or starting out on a journey not knowing your destination. Your answer to the question is gonna come when God asks you to do something that seems foolish foolish like Jeremiah buying a worthless field. And so let's get into it starting in verse one, excuse me. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord In the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why must you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And so we learn here that Jeremiah was under a sort of house arrest for preaching the word of God. Jerusalem was already under siege. Anathoth had already, therefore, been deserted by its inhabitants. It would be in possession of Babylonian troops. In those days, uh, when the invading army advanced, the outlying cities would flee because they had no defenses, and the population would come into the walled city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, with Jerusalem already under siege, we know that Anathoth, as well as the other cities, were enemy occupied. The last thing on your mind was buying what we might call today swamp land in Anathoth unless you were God. And then it's the first thing on your mind because in verse six, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle will come to you saying, buy my field, which is in Anathoth for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now that last phrase is interesting because it lets me know that Jeremiah may have initially thought he was making this up, that it really wasn't from the Lord. Do you ever have an idea and, and you think, Lord, is that from you? Is that from you, Lord? Every year when I want to sign up for American Idol, I, I get that feeling. <laughs> Lord, are you telling me to sign up for American Idol? And then the Lord clearly tells me, no. You think you can dance is more, uh, more up your, <laughs> more your speed. And it is, because I, I think I can dance, but I can't. But anyway, and so Jeremiah was, I don't know how he received this, but he, he didn't know if this was from the Lord. Why? Because it was such a stupid idea. I'm sure he was hoping it was a bad dream. That's how outrageous it was. It wasn't until Hanamel came And then Jeremiah kind of says, well, then I knew it was the word of the Lord. So the Lord was, you know, he gave him this word, and then he gave him a way of gauging its accuracy. Now, Hanamel doesn't really come across as being spiritual, shrewd by worldly standards, but not spiritual. Cash in the form of silver would prove valuable during a captivity, but not real estate. He must have thought that cousin Jeremiah was just foolish enough to buy the land. And so your, your land has already been overrun. It's already occupied by the enemy and you're thinking, who can I sell this to? Who's stupid enough to buy this plot of land? Oh, I know, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. He's in prison right now. I'll go and offer him because he has the right of redemption. Land in Israel stayed within families. Not anybody could just buy any piece of land. Uh, And so he offers it to Jeremiah. And so here we see the worldly shrewd man and we see the heavenly spiritual man. It's clear which man we want to be. Not ought to be. I I give Christians a lot of credit. We want to be Jeremiah. We want to be Noah. We want to be Abraham. It's in our nature as Christians. When we're born again, when we belong to the Lord, there's that part of us, that spiritual part of us, Lord, I want to be those men in my own context, the spiritual man that others look upon and are led to you. And then you remember, oh yeah, these guys, sometimes they look like absolute fools. While Hanamel went home with silver, Jeremiah had nothing. And you realize that you have to look a little foolish. And so it's clear which man we want to be, but which one are we most of the time? That's a good question. Let me give you a for instance. Now, we're talking about God asking us to do something foolish from the world standpoint and being willing to uh, be fools for Christ's sake, but uh, let's just look at a regular investing in the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just the opportunity that God gives us all the time, week by week, to give to the work I'm not talking about throwing money at something that might seem foolish. talking about investing in the kingdom of God by regular sacrificial giving that God has promised to bless both now and in eternity. The majority of believers, not believers here, I'm talking just about polling data, the majority of believers give very little of their money to the work of the Lord. The national average is less than 3% of believers Income, And so believers who give at all give about 2.6% of their income uh, to the work of the Lord. People are always asking, is the tithe biblical? Should I give 10%? And the truth is, very rare anymore for people to give 10%. They give about 2.6%. And that's among people who actually give. A lot of Christians, I might even say the majority of Christians, going to church today, Sunday, somewhere in America, they just don't give anything to the work of the Lord. They're happy that other people give their 2.6% and that they have churches to go to. Now, let me say this. That's all to say this. If a person, if I'm not already giving to the work of the Lord on a regular sacrificial basis when God has told me he will bless me for it now and reward me for it in the future, I'm probably not going to hear the Lord when he comes along and he says, I want you to invest in something that seems foolish right now. Because I'm, I'm not willing to invest in something that seems normal right now. Why in the world would I all of a sudden write a check for something that seems absolutely foolish? And so people, if they say, well, that's never happened to me, I've never been asked to buy a field and to look foolish. And, and when we talk about buying a field today, a lot, you know, we're using financial examples, but it could be uh, anything in your life that God asks you to do that would be foolish, to turn down a promotion, uh, to stay someplace when there's a better opportunity someplace else, but God has given you his direction. There's a lot of things God might ask you to do that are foolish, and what I'm here to say, if, if, if you're, in your heart you're thinking, I can't ever remember a time that God has asked me to do anything foolish, well then you need to consider whether you're doing the things that God wants you to do on a normal basis. Because he wants to stretch you out. If there's anything that you learn about the Lord from reading his word, he wants to stretch you, he wants to grow you, he wants to prove himself faithful to you. Not just powerful. You know, it's easy for God to prove himself powerful. He can do that anytime he wants. He can answer any of your prayers at any time. It's more difficult from our point of view for God to prove himself faithful because we have to patiently wait and see what he's doing and then he's faithful at the end of something and we learn something that we wouldn't have learned if we had just gotten what we wanted right at the beginning. Back to our text, verse nine. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth. I weighed out money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, I sealed it, I took witnesses and weighed the money on scales. I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masaya, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. Now, there's a lot of interesting legal and historical information in these verses about the buying and selling of land under Jewish law. For our purposes, I wanna note that Jeremiah made a big deal out of this transaction. It Wasn't something he tried to keep quiet. He went through all the normal channels and involved lots of other folks who must have thought him a fool who was being taken advantage of. I wonder how many people took him aside and said, Jeremiah, do you, do you really wanna buy, do you understand that Anathoth is worthless right now? One thing about being a fool for Jesus God wants to let people know. He wants to put people on display. You know, a lot of times we're, you know, as parents or grandparents, we're, we're proud of our children or grandchildren sometimes and we're like, uh, that's, you know. And God says, hey, this is, this is my child, this is my son Gene acting like a fool. Isn't this wonderful? Look how foolish that is. I, I got him to do this foolish thing. Everybody thinks he's an idiot. Man, him and I are gonna get them in the end. It's gonna be great. And I'm like, what? I mean, I can't, how about you do something really, you know, powerful, wonderful. Can we get to that right now? Can we cut to the chase, God says, no, I kind of like you as a fool. <laughs> but you understand. I mean, it's, I'm saying this in the nicest possible way. You don't think people thought Noah was foolish? Hey, Noah, what are you doing? I see you got a lot of lumber. You're going to open up a Home Depot or what? What's up? Gopher wood and pitch, what, what are you doing? I'm a building a boat. Really? We're not near any water. It's not that kind of boat. What kind of boat is it? It's kind of like the Chaffee Zoo. <laughs> really? Well, what are you talking about? It's going to start raining. What's that? And the fountains of the deep are going to break up. What are you talking about? It's a good thing they didn't have mental health. In those days, he'd be fifty-one fifty. We'd be, you know, it'd be that'd be the chapter, Genesis fifty-one fifty, <laughs> the story of Noah, and uh, it's crazy. Now you and I look at that and we think, oh, Noah, the one faithful guy, Noah and Mrs. Noah and their kids. Man, thank you, Noah. And then you think, I wonder, would I have been Noah? would I have been willing to look that foolish for many decades, at least 80 years? I I think we normally say 120 years to build the ark, but I think it was, if you read everything, it's a little bit less than that from the time God first told him to the time he built it, but it's at least 80 years his daily activity was to build that giant boat at a time when it had never rained and nobody believed. Nobody on earth, not just at his place of business. I mean, you might be having trouble at work or in your neighborhood, Or even in your city. Nobody on the planet believed Noah. And we look at that now and we say, oh man, to be Noah. And God says, all right, I can make you Noah at work and in your neighborhood and in your city if that's what you really want. Let's do it. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. It seemed foolish, but it did at least have a spiritual spin to it. It was symbolic. Because God was promising the eventual return to the land, what seemed worthless was actually gonna be a steal. If he believed his own prophecies that God would one day restore the Jews to the land, then Jeremiah should be willing to buy the field for his descendants. We like to say your walk needs to match your talk. It's a nicer way of saying put up or shut up or in this case, put your money where your mouth is. And so Jeremiah had been talking about this return to the land. And so Hanamel, I don't know how much Hanamel understood this, but in a sense he was saying if you really believe what you're preaching, then buy some land in Anathoth because you believe that God is gonna restore us to that land, and Jeremiah was put to the test. Now, you and I are never gonna be perfect this side of heaven, but we are called upon to have the integrity to be consistent between what we say we believe and how we behave. Verse 16, now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, and listen to this prayer, it's a magnificent prayer. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That'd be a great song. Somebody should write a song from those verses. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel, mighty in work. Your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. To this day, And in Israel and among other men, you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You've given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in, they took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do and therefore you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. What a great read that is. I mean, that's some underlying stuff right there, you know? That's a, a great section of scripture. What an awesome God we serve. Jeremiah seems to be on a spiritual high until you realize in verse 24 that this was all a preface to him saying, but, and questioning God. I've always learned when you're talking to people, whether it's a counseling situation or whatever, listen to them and listen to them and listen to them until they say, but. But. And then you can ignore everything that they said previously because they don't really believe it. This is what they're struggling. I know God is great and I know this, but I don't believe any of that because I'm struggling. And so Jeremiah, listen to what he says. In verse 24, he's he's on this big high. God, you can do anything. You proved yourself. You're wonderful. You're marvelous. You're amazing. And then he says, look, siege mounds. They've come to the city to take it. The city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There, you see it. You've said to me, buy a field for money and take witnesses? Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. I don't know how else to read that, but that he's a fluster. God, I, you, want me, you want me buy land in Anathoth when it was occupied by Chaldeans and when the city is about to fall? I, I did it, but I, it's a struggle. It's hard to look foolish. We can joke about it all we want this morning, but to be building a boat when it had never rained or be headed toward a promised land and not know where you were going? Abraham, Abram at the time. Abraham, where are you going? Going to the promised land where my descendants will be as, multi, uh, as you know, multiplied and as many as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. Really, wow, where is this place? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, how are you gonna get there? I don't know that either. I, but I know I have to leave Ur of the Chaldees and if I'm gonna ever get there, I gotta put one foot in front of the other. Do you imagine how stupid people thought Abram was? An imbecile. I mean, you know, after he got done talking to you, it was like, you're the dumbest man on the planet. You're going somewhere, and you don't even know where you're going. It's not like he said, I'm just wandering. I'm just, I'm just on a walkabout, walking about, you know. No, he said, I'm going to the promised land, and I don't know where it is. Want to come with? Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't. And so... You know, and so, now some of the things that we're asked to do that seem foolish, they're they're really not that hard. For example, today we're to hold on to biblical values of marriage and family while the rest of the country is immersed itself in immorality. And you're feeling dumber and dumber all the time if you have traditional family values. There's any number of other things that constitute the normal Christian life that seem foolish by the world's lowered standards. But you have to remember, the world always wants to come across as if they are growing intellectually, as if they are discovering things that idiots that wrote the Bible didn't understand. Now we're mature, now we understand these things. They're lowering the standard, not raising it. But you're made to seem foolish in every discussion, in every forum. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, April 9, 1996, addressed a prayer breakfast in Jackson, Michigan, sponsored by the Southern Baptist-affiliated Mississippi College School of Law's Christian Legal Society. Justice Scalia told the audience that Christians must proclaim their biblical faith and belief in miracles and ignore the scorn of what he called the worldly wise. Summing up, Justice Scalia declared this, and this is a quote, We must pray for the courage to endure the scorn of the sophisticated world. We are fools for Christ's sake. Interesting. And we're happy that a guy like Scalia says that because he has some weight. When you say that in the break room, you're just an idiot. So memorize that. We must therefore ask, as we come to the end of point one, is there a field Jesus has shown me that I ought to buy? but I would look foolish doing it. I can't even begin to guess what field the Lord might be showing you right now. It's a very personal question. I can say this, if you never do anything for the Lord that makes you look foolish, then you have to be passing on opportunities because every one of his followers must at some point be a fool for Jesus Christ. Now the next question, is Jesus faithful enough to bless a worthless field for you? The field Jeremiah bought was only worthless from a temporary and worldly perspective. From God's vantage point, it was priceless. And the Babylonian invasion was the perfect time to invest in his promises. You could get it for a steal. It wasn't worth anything, and so buy it now because in the future, it's gonna be like having beachfront property. Verse 26, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? No, no. But as I said earlier, God is not just powerful. He is faithful, but he has to prove his faithfulness to you. He doesn't have to prove it to himself. He has to prove it to you. And so he's telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I can do anything I want within the boundaries of the universe I've created. I'm gonna do what I say I'm going to do. I have the power, but you need to learn that I am faithful and will bring it to pass. You're 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the uh, the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. I will remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, And they have turned to me their back and not their face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons, their daughters, to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin." And so God again reiterated exactly what was happening in Judah and why it was happening. It was a discipline on his children. And we hear that and you think, man, it's a really tough way to discipline your child. You have to remember that God has to discipline them as a nation. God was dealing with Israel nationally. How do you discipline a nation? They are conquered by another nation. And so that's the way it worked. Now, they certainly deserved the captivity that was coming. Which is worse, God allowing Jerusalem to be burned or the Jews offering their children as sacrifices in the fires of the god Molech, who they worshiped as an idol? I think that's an easy answer there. Verse 36, "'Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'concerning this city of which you say "'it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon "'by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, "'behold, I will gather them out of all countries "'where I have driven them in my anger, "'in my fury, and in great wrath. "'I will bring them back to this place, "'and I will cause them to dwell safely.'" They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul." If you are God, you have the luxury of skipping over huge periods of time when you are talking. The things God has uh, promises in these verses have still not yet happened. They're in the future. Enough has occurred to know that he is God, that he will perform what he has promised. Israel is a nation again in her promised land, never again to be displaced. We have no doubt that he will draw Jews from all over the planet during the great tribulation and that they will know him and he will perform his new covenant for them in the end. As a nation right now, they have not embraced Jesus as their savior, so they're still awaiting the fulfillment of the new covenant. The new covenant was a major focus of our study last week, so I won't go over it again. Only I will say that today, as we await the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, Jews and Gentiles who trust the Lord for salvation already partake of the new covenant. We have our sins forgiven once for all, we have immediate access to the throne of God, and we have the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them, Fields will be bought in the land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It's been given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Yes, Jeremiah, you look foolish now, but there's coming a time when the investment you made in a field at Anathoth will pay off. It will be the beachfront property of its day when Jesus returns in his second coming to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. In that day, all the Hanamels who seem so shrewd will be exposed as worldly men who lived for today rather than eternity. When Walt Disney started buying swampland in Florida, he did so under different corporate names so no one would realize what he was doing. He knew that land values would skyrocket once folks understood Disney was buying land. Don't you wish you had bought a few acres to resell to Disney? Don't you wish, you know, in the cartoons or in the movies, there's always that one house in the middle of the development. And they, you know, that one person that won't sell, their house becomes priceless They can get whatever they want for it. Well, that opportunity has passed, at least in Orlando, but any investment you make for the Lord will in the future be the Orlando of its time. You can't go wrong investing with the Lord. However, you might look foolish for a time. Now, we have a little bit of a testimony, our church, regarding this area of scripture It's nothing like the foolishness that Jeremiah went through. It's just kind of like a a minor foolishness. But many of you have heard this story before. Years and years ago, when we were still meeting at the YMCA, our good friend, Pastor Don McClure, came, and he addressed our leadership. And and he taught from this text about buying the field, about just investing in the work of the Lord and, and all. And at the end of it, he said, and, and I thought it was a prophecy, and so did the rest of the guys and gals. They, he said, maybe you just need to go out and buy a field, literally. You know, obviously this is figurative for Christians today, but maybe you just you know need to buy a field, go do something. And not that we hadn't been looking always for a building or a place or something, but we started to get really excited about that and some time passed and then God provided an opportunity for us to, to buy that piece of property that's uh, on the corner of Glacier and Fargo. There wasn't a glacier at that time, it was all farmland. And the Dutras agreed to split the land for us and sell us five acres there. And so we bought that and, and we thought, hey Lord, we bought the field. We didn't know we'd bought the farm at the time, but we bought the field. And so naturally you think, what happens? You buy a field, God opens the door, and, and what next? Well, you put up your building, right? Finally, after all these years, seven, 16, 17 years in Hanford, you know, which is making you look foolish enough, uh, you're gonna, you've, hey, we've got land and we're gonna build. And so we got into the building project, did all the normal things that churches do, except ask for money and have a thermometer and post bonds and all of that. Trusting the Lord, because he had given us our field. And it became painfully obvious early on that even a million dollars wasn't gonna be enough to put up a decent building. At one point, I think we, you know, by the time we had infrastructure and roads and all that, we were looking at uh, metal sheds at Orchard, you know. (laughs) thinking maybe we could meet there one, you know, one person at a time. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but, it, you know, we just, and we just looked at each other and said, yeah, we're not, and, and, you know, we had brochures. Uh, here's the building we wanna build and here's what we're gonna do and all that. And I still remember the Sunday that I had to get up and say, hey, guys, hey, great news. We are not building anything on our land, not in the foreseeable future. <laughs> Man, did I feel like a fool because you think, well, why do we have land? Why did you buy a piece of land? And some of you who were here during that time, you meant well, but you you made the same face I made, like. (laughs) And some of you had the courage to at least say, well, so why did we buy the land? I don't know. God told us to. God told you to buy land that we can't build on? (laughs) What else has he told you? And so it was hard. Now, it's nothing like, I don't want to seem like we're like, you know, our church is like Jeremiah, I mean, because at least it was land, it was valuable. It, you know, it, we owned it, we could do something with it. So it wasn't the end of the world, it was, it was a little minor it was this much foolishness. In a world of you know, God asking you to build an ark, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty tame, that's why it, it's not going to make it into the Bible, you know, it's not that kind of foolishness. But then once we got done pitying ourselves and wondering what God was doing, once I quit crying, <laughs> God said, now why don't you look around and just look around, see what's happening. A lot of churches were for sale all of a sudden. Koinonia's building was for sale, this building was for sale, the old Mormon building on 11th Avenue, which is some kind of secret conclave for somebody now. I don't know what they do there, but you know that was for sale. We looked at them all. And this obviously was the best facility. And we bought this for like half of what we were gonna have to pay for a building that was the size of a shed. And it's fantastic. It's just been wonderful. You know, the land became the collateral to do this. And all of a sudden, we were geniuses. We were real estate geniuses. We had, you know, leveraged land that that we had purchased on a sales kind of into this building and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And now we've since sold off the land, you know, and it's just we're the smartest guys on the planet. <laughs> Except that it's all the Lord. I mean, it's totally the Lord's doing and we have nothing uh, to say about it. And so very small, very small testimony of faithfulness, foolishness. But you know what? You've got to do what the Lord asks you to do. If God says buy a field, you've got to buy it. You can talk to the Lord ahead of time. Jeremiah waited until afterwards. You can say, Lord, this seems foolish, and I'm not recommending that we just do foolish things for the sake of being foolish. We're good at that already. We don't need to go out you know, and add to that. But sooner or later in your Christian walk, and probably multiple times in your walk if we live that long, you're gonna have to be a fool for Christ. You're gonna have to invest in something that doesn't seem to be there yet. You're gonna have to turn something down that seems to be the perfect thing or take something that seems to be less than perfect. I don't know what it's going to be. That's between you and the Lord. But if you wanna be a Noah, if you wanna be an Abraham, if you wanna be a Jeremiah, and I know you do, I do. Not, in, in, in in our spiritual heart, we want to. We know that we are men of like passions with these guys. There was nothing different about these guys. If anything, they were dumber than us. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. But God looks at all of us and says, I can, I can do something in your life, but you're gonna have to take some heat for it. Your, people are gonna snicker behind your back. They're gonna think you're foolish. I could, you know, I mean, we, we could have woke up one morning after buying the land and there could have been a building on the land God does miracles, right? It could be a building there. The the New Jerusalem could have been on our land, for all I know. But God says, no, there's nothing is going on your land. Nothing but nothing. But I'm gonna use it, and you're gonna have a testimony of it. And, And that's what we're looking for, is a testimony to what? Bring glory to God, not to ourselves. There's plenty of Hannah Mills out there. Guys that are shrewd in business, that are making a killing for themselves, that are holding back from God to give to themselves. You don't need to be a genius to be a Hanamel. But you need the faith to be a Jeremiah. You've got that faith, put it into action.